welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolich. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the trauma module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and the operation or topic we'll be covering today is abdominal trauma. So we wanted to start off by talking about indications for surgery and decision-making in blunt and penetrating abdominal trauma. So Ben, do you want to talk to us about blunt abdominal trauma? So when anyone presents with blunt, blunt abdominal trauma, of course, we're going to go through our EMST algorithm, starting with a primary survey, moving through to making a decision at the end of the primary survey about whether or not the patient is hemodynamically stable or unstable. And really what we want to decide at the end of our primary survey is, does the patient need a laparotomy or not? The indications for a trauma laparotomy uh, in a patient who has blunt abdominal trauma are a hemodynamically stable patient with peritonitis, who you're going to explore, or a shocked patient with intra-abdominal hemorrhage who needs rapid control of bleeding. And one of the ways you could determine they have intra-abdominal hemorrhage is with an EFAS scan and finding free fluid. For penetrating abdominal trauma, it's a little bit different. I haven't seen a lot of penetrating abdominal trauma, and we're very lucky that we don't have a lot of that in Australia. Recently, I heard some stats from the Alfred, with, which said you were three times as likely to rupture your liver from a horse than from a gunshot in Australia, which is quite good stats, I think. But anyway, we do need to know what to do if a patient comes in with penetrating abdominal trauma. In general, again, you would do your basic EMST principles and your primary survey. For these patients, if they're hemodynamically unstable or they have peritonitis, then you're taking them to theatre. If they're hemodynamically stable, there's a few different options. And I think in the exam, you want to say something that's safe and not controversial. And in Australia, where we don't see a lot of abdominal trauma, you need to put that into consideration. So I think we've mentioned before that in the US, some places may just do serial abdominal examinations for patients with penetrating trauma. I don't think I would say that in the exam. I think if they're stable, I'd be doing a CT scan to help with my decision-making. And then the next question is whether or not the peritoneum has been breached or not. And there's a few ways you could think about determining that. The CT is not a very good at ruling it out, but you might see intra-abdominal free gas, which may rule it in. The other options include a local wound exploration, which is also, as we've just talked about off air, a little bit unreliable at times. And the other thing that I've seen is a laparoscopy to see if the peritoneum is breached. And if it is, then proceeding with a trauma laparotomy. Or I think it would also be totally reasonable to say that in a penetrating abdominal trauma, you would do a trauma laparotomy. Most guidelines I've looked at, Amanda, say that the non-operative management of penetrating abdominal trauma really should be practiced in high volume centres only. And I'm not sure that many Australian hospitals fulfil the criteria for high volume penetrating trauma centres. Yeah, definitely agree. So Ben, you've made the decision that your patient with either blunt or penetrating abdominal injury needs a trauma laparotomy. I like to think of a trauma laparotomy as the setup or preparation, equipment, and then actually performing the procedure. Did you want to take us through those different aspects of a trauma laparotomy? Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned before, in my mind, the indications for trauma laparotomy are to control bleeding and control contamination. And, and they're also my goals of, of, the, uh, of the procedure. So if we're thinking about setup, the key to success in setup and performing the laparotomy is, is teamwork and communication within your team. And there's a number of different players that you need to coordinate, including theatre staff, orderlies, your anaesthetist, and potentially the uh, the blood service as well. But if we're thinking about setup, you want the theatre warmed to try and prevent coagulopathy. You want to talk to your nurse about the equipment that you're going to need. So you're going to need major uh, abdominal surgical equipment as well as vascular equipment and trays for a thoracotomy if required. You want at least 20 packs that are folded into quarters. You want to uh, auto transfusion device like a cell saver 
if that's available and you want help available if required. Do you have anything else to add? I was thinking about two suckers and a headlight and a skilled assistant. It's good to have uh, a fixed retractor of your choice available as well, uh, something like an uh, Omnitract or a Book Walter. So I'm going to have the patient positioned in the crucifix position, so supine with both arms out uh, on a warming mat if possible. They're going to be under general anaesthesia uh, with an IDC placed and have broad spectrum antibiotics. And I'm going to prep the patient from neck to knees in case I need to extend my operation into the chest or down onto the thighs or I might even need to harvest vein uh, from, from a leg. So prepping widely is really important. So moving on to performing the operation, we gain entry into the abdomen by a long midline incision from the ziphy sternum to the pubis. It's often described that you do this rapidly uh, and sharply just with, a, just with a blade, aiming to enter the peritoneum safely near the umbilicus. Uh, and then you can use heavy scissors if time is against you to open the abdomen completely through the linear alba. The trauma T incision is also described. So if you need to get better access to the right upper quadrant, you can extend transversely just above the umbilicus out uh, through the, the right side of the abdomen to get better exposure to the liver. So once you've opened the abdomen, you should divide the falciform ligament to give better uh, access to the right upper quadrant. And then you want to think about the objectives of the operation, which are to control bleeding and control uh, contamination. And bleeding trumps contamination. So the first thing to do is to scoop out any large clots and place them in a kidney dish. Eviscerate the small bowel if possible out to the right upper quadrant and wrap that in a pack. And then you want to systematically pack the abdomen. And the goal of packing is to use pressure from the packs to obtain hemostasis. And I like to start in the right upper quadrant, so packing around the liver, aiming to reapproximate its anatomical configuration, moving to the left upper quadrant, left paracolic gutter, pelvis, right paracolic gutter, and then packing centrally. And then you can take a deep breath and reevaluate. What would you do next, Amanda? Well, you're giving your anaesthetist some time to catch up. This is when I would put in the fixed retractor so that when I'm going to be systematically assessing the abdomen, I will have good exposure. And the other thing that I read that I hadn't come across before was to assess the midline structures, that midline packing isn't particularly effective and that you may need to, if you have a central hematoma, um, put pressure on the supraceliac aorta or place pressure um, over vessels in the midline as well while you're giving the anaesthetist a chance to catch up. So once you've packed all of the quadrants, there's two approaches. The first is to then systematically remove the pack starting from the area where you think is the least likely that the problem is and work towards the most likely, or if you have significant hemorrhage from the most likely area that you would go there first. The idea of doing it in the opposite order, so starting with the least likely, is that you're going to have more space to deal with the, the problem. So if you have it controlled, uh, getting all those packs out will give you some more space. So we've done our packing, and now we're going to move on to assessing each of the solid organs in the abdomen. So we're going to talk about liver trauma to start with. Liver trauma is quite common in blunt abdominal trauma and also in penetrating abdominal trauma given the size of the organ. The grading system for liver trauma is the AAST grading system, which classifies liver trauma into grade 1, 2, 3, 4 and 5. So going through each of these in turn, because we do need to know this for the exam, Grade one is a laceration that's less than one centimeter in depth or a subcapsular hematoma that's less than 10% of the surface area. So I remember that as one and 10, so nice even sort of numbers. Unfortunately, it doesn't follow that pattern, but grade two is a laceration that's one to three centimeters in depth or a subcapsular hematoma that's 10 to 50% of the surface area of the liver or an intraparenchymal hematoma that's less than 10 centimetres in diameter. So that's one to three centimetre laceration, 
10 to 50% surface area and less than 10 centimeter hematoma in the liver. So grade three is a laceration that's more than three centimeters in depth. A subcapsular hematoma more than 50% of the surface area of the liver intraparenchymal hematoma that's more than 10 centimetres in diameter or if there's active bleeding within the parenchyma and a vascular injury such as a pseudoaneurysm or AV fistula. Grade four is active bleeding into the peritoneum and parenchymal disruption that's 25 to 75% of a hepatic lobe, one lobe, so either right or left. And then grade five is a parenchymal disruption that's more than 75% of a hepatic lobe or a juxtahepatic major venous injury, such as caval or central major hepatic vein injury. I don't think there's a good way to remember that. I think we just have to memorize it for the exam, unfortunately. Well, I did hear something from one of my study group recently that it, it kind of plays into spleen as well. But if you remember 1 to 3 and 10 to 50, that gives you in the first three grades the size of lacerations and subcapsular hematomas. The other thing is if there's two uh, injuries to the liver, you get one more. You go up a grade, up to the grade 3. So let's talk a little bit about management of liver injuries. I don't know why they make us really learn the grading system because that doesn't actually tell you how you should manage the patient. Really, management is based on the patient's physiology. So if they're unstable and they've got a positive fast, you're going to take them straight to surgery. And if they're stable and there's no other indications for surgery and, you know, no peritonitis, then they don't need surgery regardless of how bad the liver injury is. And these are the patients that get a CT scan And if there's an arterial blush, then you embolize them. And if there's no blush, then you manage them non-operatively. Which sounds very simple, but unfortunately it gets a little bit more complicated than that when we start talking about surgical management of liver injuries. So going back to our trauma laparotomy, we're intraoperative and we are unpacking the liver to have a look at what our injuries are. And there's two main things that we might find. The first is a minor liver laceration or a bit of the liver that's oozing or there's a laceration that we have to deal with. And then the second thing is that there may be a severe liver injury with a shattered lobe or significant hemorrhage. So let's talk about each of those in turn. So firstly, if there's a minor liver lesion, a laceration, a little part of the capsule that's been torn off that's oozing, then there's a few local hemostatic things that we could try to try to control the bleeding. The first is simple compression, so repacking it and dealing with other problems. We can use electric cautery, as most of us would have done in lap collies, and just turn that up to 80 and give it a good burn. <laughs> we can use flow seal or other hemostatic agents, depending on if there's a little rent, you might want to put flow seal down into it. If it's a bit of capsule that's come off, you may use some tacoseal or fibrillar or something to try to control that bleeding. They also talk in the in the books about argon beam coagulation, which I've never used, but sounds like it's sort of a big electric artery. <laughs> it's actually awesome because it's like a flamethrower. Okay. Yeah, cool. flamethrower onto the liver. <laughs> it's my favourite. <laughs> you can also use sutures, but it's a little bit difficult with the liver because unless the capsule's intact, um, the sutures often pull through. You can use some adjuncts if you're going to suture. So you can use little strips of Teflon to reinforce the sutures on the outside and stop them from pulling through. Or you can use a little pedicle of omentum if there's a little rent and use that for internal pressure and then suture above it. And they suggest using something with a large blunt tip, like an OPDS or an O-chromic. In terms of other options, in the exam, I don't think I'd be talking about hepatography, where you open a tract and go digging down deep to find vessels and ligate them. I think that's something that maybe if you were a liver surgeon and had a lot of experience doing that, you might do, but I wouldn't be saying I'd be doing that. And then the other thing is if you've got a penetrating injury and there's a tract, you can do something for internal pressure. So you can use something like a Sensteak and Blakemore balloon, or you can tie a Penrose drain over a Foley catheter. So tie the end of it free from the end of the Foley catheter, the proximal end 
around the Foley catheter with a suture and then you can put air into that through the actual Foley catheter and blow it up in the tract, which can put manual compression into a bleeding tract. The other scenario that we might find ourselves in is a, is a major hepatic injury. And I think my approach to this in the exam is really going to be one of damage control because it does get subspecialized pretty quickly. And I think in reality, uh, we can always just try and get control of the situation and call for help from an experienced hepatobiliary surgeon. But I like the mantra of push, pack, Pringle, Angio. And uh, I think that's a good approach to keep in the back of our minds when we're thinking about major liver injuries. So the push is trying to restore the normal anatomical configuration of the liver to tamponade any bleeding. Pack is using packs to maintain that position. Pringle is applying a Pringle maneuver to occlude the uh, vascular inflow of the liver. And NGO is our uh, adjunct to obtain uh, arterial control of any arterial bleeding that we can't control with the above measures. Did you want to talk about how you would actually pack the right lobe of the liver to reconstitute it? Yeah, sure. So if we're going to try and pack the liver to restore its anatomical configuration, we may need to mobilize the liver. So we do need to uh, divide the falciform ligament and the triangular and coronary ligaments to, to free up the liver off the diaphragm so that we can move the liver around. I'd use six packs folded into quarters and then rolled up and I want to place two above the liver, two on the lateral side of the liver and two on the inferior side of the liver to reapproximate the liver into its anatomical configuration. I haven't done this before but what I hear is the tendency is to really cram a lot of packs around the liver um, but apparently less is more and you really just want to try and uh, approximate the tissue without too much uh, too much pressure on it. Mm, yeah, you don't want to put pressure on the IVC and uh, stop the uh, preload for the patient when they're already bleeding. And so packing, in my mind, is useful for venous bleeding. So it's going to control bleeds from the portal vein or minor hepatic venous bleeding with the packing. So exactly. If the bleeding is not controlled by packing, what's your next step? And what does that mean? Well, it means that the bleeding is most likely arterial because we've already controlled any venous bleeding. So the next step is to perform a Pringle maneuver. Pringle is compression of the vascular inflow of the liver. And as we all know, the hepatic artery and portal vein run in the free edge of the lesser omentum. So what I do is use my left index finger and hook that through the foramen of Winslow, see the edge of my finger in the lesser omentum and pop it through. And then you've got all of the vascular inflows of the liver on top of your finger. So you want to use something atraumatic to compress those. And the options are a vascular clamp like a Satinsky, a soft bowel clamp or a nylon tape with a snugger to compress those. So by compressing that vascular inflow, we should stop any venous and arterial bleeding now. What does it mean if the bleeding doesn't stop? So if the bleeding doesn't stop after doing those two things, it means we're in big trouble <laughs> and we should call for help because we have a retrohepatic cable or hepatic vein injury. That's probably beyond what I can deal with. But you might have some ideas. Oh, I, I have lots of ideas from the textbooks, but nothing I think that I'd be able to do in practice. But I think one thing they say in Top Knife is to use the falciform ligament and put some uh, posterior lateral pressure on the liver to try to compress those retrohepatic veins and IVC. And the other thing they say is not to completely mobilize the liver because those attachments, coronary ligaments and triangular ligaments may actually be tamponading things. And if you open it up, the patient may bleed more. So I think that's going to be my approach in the exam. Yeah, I mean, the hepatic veins are hidden from us usually by those ligamentous attachments. So yeah, you're right. Opening those could lead to big trouble. The other thing I read that I thought was interesting was that the other option, if your packing and pringling don't control the bleeding, is that they may have an anomalous origin of their hepatic artery. 
So they could have a hepatic artery that's coming to the left side of the liver from the celiac or something like that. So to think about that and um, see if you can identify that as well. What do you think the role is for interventional radiology and embolization? So say you've done your packing and it hasn't controlled the bleeding and you do the Pringles and it does control the bleeding. Would you be sending that patient to embolization? Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's the indication for angio is exactly that situation. But I guess the trouble is often the logistics and I'm not sure what your hospital is like. We don't have a hybrid suite. So what I think you'd have to do is basically uh, pack the patient, temporarily close their abdomen, uh, having removed the Pringle and get them to angio as quick as you can. Ideally, if you had a hybrid suite, the uh, interventional radiologist could join you and uh, you could carry out the procedure concurrently. Yeah, a little bit of a logistical nightmare, but I think better than digging into the liver to find the vessel yourself. Definitely. So, Amanda, the other thing that can happen with traumatised livers apart from bleeding is bile leaks. Do you want to tell us about bile leaks? Yeah. The incidence of traumatic bile leaks is not insignificant. There's about 3 to 7% following blunt trauma. And there's not really a good consensus on what the optimal management of these should be. And the sort of case series that are out there are pretty small. For patients who've not had an embolization, there's quite high rates of spontaneous resolution of bile leaks. So obviously, if the patient develops a bile leak and they have biliary peritonitis, you're going to take them to theatre and do a washout and put in drains. If they have a localised biloma, you can drain that percutaneously. And then you can actually watch and wait. And you know, up to 100% of patients in some series, the bile leak will resolve without any intervention. So in patients who don't resolve... And in patients who've had an embolization, it's much more likely that they won't resolve. Then the question is whether or not to do an ERCP. ERCPs do help with bile leaks and they can help them resolve. But the issue is that you are contaminating the biliary tree in a liver that's traumatized. And if they've had embolizations or just because of the trauma itself, they can have devascularized segments of the liver. And they have quite high rates of developing liver abscesses after ERCP um, up to 22% in one series. And these are patients who subsequently needed major interventions to resolve the abscesses, including resection. So it's not something that you want to jump straight into. I guess I just want to say that obviously ERCP is an option in patients who don't have a resolving bile leak, but that you really do want to wait and and see if it resolves by itself before jumping straight into doing an ERCP. So let's move on to talking about splenic injury. And this is an exam favourite. We should start by first talking about grading of splenic injuries. And again, we use the AAST grading system of solid organ injury classification. Again, with splenic injuries, there's five grades. And within each grade, we're looking at subcapsular hematoma or parenchymal laceration Uh, as the broad principles for classifying these. So a grade one injury is a subcapsular hematoma less than 10% of the surface area of the spleen or a parenchymal laceration less than one centimetre depth. And in reality, that also corresponds to a capsular tear of the spleen. A grade two injury is a subcapsular hematoma 10 to 50% of the surface area of the spleen or an intraparenchymal hematoma less than five centimetres also a parenchymal laceration one to three centimetres in depth. A grade three injury is a subcapsular hematoma more than 50% of the surface area of the spleen, a ruptured subcapsular hematoma or an intraparenchymal hematoma more than five centimetres, or a parenchymal laceration more than three centimetres in depth. So again, as I mentioned in liver, the quick way to remember that is the numbers one, to 3 and 10 to 50. A grade 4 injury is any injury in the presence of a splenic vascular injury or active bleeding within the spleen capsule. Also a parenchymal laceration involving segmental or hyalur vessels devascularizing more than a quarter of the spleen. And a grade 5 injury is a shattered spleen. It can be often really difficult I think to in practice grade a splenic injury despite the rules being quite explicit. 
Yeah, I agree. I usually try to think of what is the highest number that it can get to. So again, remembering that active blush makes it a four, a totally ruptured spleen makes it a five, and then looking at those other factors. So do you want to talk to us, Amanda, about non-operative management of splenic injuries? The criteria for non-operative management of a splenic injury is that the patient is hemodynamically stable. They've had a scan that documents and classifies their injury severity, that they don't have any other injuries that require surgery, and that their transfusion requirement is less than two packed red blood cell units. So if a patient's requiring multiple units of transfusion, has an irreversible coagulopathy, or requires anticoagulation for another reason, then that would exclude them from non-operative management. And non-operative management of splenic injuries is essentially serial abdominal examinations, serial hemoglobin, serial vital signs, and making sure that if that patient did need immediate surgery, you would have the facilities available to perform that procedure. In terms of non-operative management, we could also talk about embolization in splenic injuries. And essentially, there's therapeutic embolization and there's prophylactic embolization. So patients who have active blush on their CT scan, but who are hemodynamically stable or responders to resuscitation, you would consider doing an embolization for those patients therapeutically to stop the bleeding. In patients who have grade four or grade five injuries, if they're not hemodynamically unstable and needing to go straight to theatre, even if they don't have an active blush, you can consider embolization for those patients prophylactically. And that's been shown to reduce the likelihood of those patients failing non-operative management and needing a splenectomy. It's a little bit of a gray zone with grade three injuries, whether you might also do that, do a prophylactic embolization. But I think that's a bit of a gray zone in the exam, I'd say definitely for grade four and fives, although most fives are probably going to theatre anyway. Do you have an opinion on vaccinating patients who are successful with non-operative splenic injury management? Yeah, I think there's not great guidelines for this. I think in my institution, I'd usually ask the haematologist what they thought. And it's probably a combination of factors like the age of the patient, how much of the spleen looks to be devascularized on the imaging, whether they've had an embolization, whether they will get vaccinations. And usually if they would get vaccinated and have a um, short course of antibiotics and then have testing for how jolly bodies to see if they had functional spleen and then in the future they could stop. So what is your criteria for taking a patient to theatre or how do you determine if a patient's failing non-operative management? Yeah, so I think similar to the liver, if a patient is hemodynamically stable but has peritonitis or if they're hemodynamically unstable with a positive fast, then I'd be taking those patients to theatre. And in terms of if they're having non-operative management, if they developed peritonitis, were dropping their hemoglobin despite blood transfusion um, or became hemodynamically unstable, I'd be taking those patients to theatre. So if we go back to our scenario where we've done our trauma laparotomy and we've packed all the quadrants and we start removing the packs from the left upper quadrant and we find a shattered, bleeding spleen, in this situation, what you want to do is you want to get the spleen to the midline. Often the hematoma and the rupture has done a lot of the dissection for you but you're going to place your non-operative hand or your left hand over the top of the spleen and rolling that out towards you. Use curved Mayo scissors to divide the peritoneal attachments to the diaphragm in order to mobilize the spleen up towards the midline. And at that point, you can use your fingers or a clamp across the hilum to control the bleeding. You can then divide the short gastrics with a ligature or between clips and ties and then have a look at the tail of the pancreas and make sure that that's away from the splenic hilum and divide the splenic vessels close to the hilum of the spleen. I then use a rolled pack in the cavity where the spleen was sitting up in the left upper quadrant and roll that up towards myself to see if there's any bleeding spots that have been left behind and control those. And I always leave a suction drain because of the risk of a pancreatic fistula. In kids, it's a little more important that you try and save the spleen if you can because they have a much higher risk of OPSI. Obviously, if you have a crashing patient and you need to save their life, you take out the spleen. But if the patient's more stable or resuscitated and there's a local injury to the spleen, there's other measures that you might be able to use. 
So similar to the liver, you can use coagulation. You can get out your flamethrower, the argon beam coagulation, uh, local hemostatic agents or um, uh, topical hemostatic agents to try to control the bleeding. You can use sutures similarly to with the liver, but you may again need to use Teflon pledgets to stop it from pulling through, although the capsule is much thicker in children. And you can also, if there's only part of the spleen that's been injured or part of the spleen that's devitalized, like one pole, you may be able to resect that pole and then um, over-sew the stump um, with mattress sutures to close that part of the spleen. And you can use things like um, Omentum again to help buttress your suture line. They talk about splenography with mesh, so using like a little mesh pouch, I guess, to put the spleen in and then using that to uh, reconstitute the spleen and tampen the spleen back together. I think that's a little controversial, but you could mention that as an option. Yeah, and no, I think that's good. I think splenic preservation, in my mind, has a limited role in trauma. I have quite a dichotomous opinion on this in that the patient's either stable or not and if they're not stable the spleen comes out if they're stable the spleen stays in because i think a return to theater after uh, an attempt at splenic salvage that fails is the last thing a, a traumatically injured patient needs yeah definitely and if you're dealing with multiple injuries as well you've got limited time to deal with all of the issues it's much quicker to put it in the bucket than to try to salvage indeed So next we're going to talk about renal trauma. About 10% of patients with blunt or penetrating abdominal trauma will have injuries to their kidneys and serious injuries have a high association with injuries to other organs. In terms of the diagnosis, things that might point you in the direction of renal trauma include gross hematuria or microscopic hematuria. Although patients who do not have hematuria that doesn't rule out a renal injury, but if it is present, then it can indicate that that's a problem. If they're hemodynamically stable, the imaging of choice is a CT scan, and if possible to get multi-phase and delayed imaging, then that's helpful. And the really delayed imaging or a CT IV pyelogram can also identify uh, ureteric or collecting system injuries. But if the patient's hemodynamically unstable, they're going to be going to theatre and we need to know how to assess and manage these injuries intraoperatively. There is a grading system for renal injuries, like there is for all of these. And again, it splits it up into grade one, two, three, four, and five. So a grade one injury is a hematoma, which is subcapsular or a contusion without any laceration. A grade two is a perirenal hematoma, which is confined to Gerota's fascia, or a laceration less than one centimetre in size with no urinary extravasation. A grade three injury, we're moving on from hematoma, so that's not in this classification, but they talk about laceration again. So it's a laceration that's more than one centimetres in size, but no urinary extravasation. Or a vascular injury, so a kidney vascular injury or active bleeding that's contained within Gerota's fascia. A grade four, again, is a laceration, and this is when there is a urinary extravasation, so damage to the urinary collecting system, regardless of the size of the laceration. And disruption, so a renal pelvis laceration or complete uretopelvic disruption. Segmental renal vein or artery injury active bleeding that goes beyond Dorota's fascia into the retroperitoneum or the peritoneum, and segmental or complete renal infarction due to vessel thrombosis without any active bleeding. And then a grade five is a main renal artery or vein laceration or avulsion at the hilum, completely devascularized kidney with active bleeding, or a shattered kidney with loss of any identifiable parenchymal anatomy. So again, I guess we can think about one centimetre for this one for the laceration. So no laceration for grade one, and then less than one or more than one for two and three. And if there's urinary extravasation, that puts you up to a four. And then bleeding, so either just a local hematoma in the kidney for grade one, hematoma in gerotus fascia for grade two, hematoma in Gerota's fascia with active bleeding for grade three and active bleeding outside of Gerota's fascia for grade four. 
and then grade five is a totally smashed or avulsed kidney. So management of renal lacerations does depend on the grade of the injury and the stability of the patient. If the patient's hemodynamically unstable, then they're going to theatre. And for renal injuries, what you might see is a zone two retroperitoneal hematoma. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in this episode. So we'll leave operative management of renal injuries for the moment. In terms of the grade of the injury based on the CT scan, so you've had a stable patient that's had a CT scan, for grade one and two injuries, these are mostly managed non-operatively, and these patients usually don't need any intervention. For grade three injuries, these are often also managed non-operatively, but there is going to be a big hematoma there, so you need to monitor the patient's urine output and renal function. For grade four injuries, this is where there's a collecting system damage with urinary extravasation. So these patients may need drainage of urinomas or stents. This is really going to be something that you're going to get the advice of the urologists and the nephrologists about. Um, And this isn't a life-threatening problem, so not something we'll need to deal with acutely. And for patients who have grade five injuries, so complete avulsion or smashed kidneys, often the treatment's going to be a nephrectomy. There's a little bit of controversy around patients with grade four injuries where Typically, they get an intimal tear and then they get thrombosis of the artery going to the kidney and they have a devascularized kidney but no bleeding. And the controversy is around whether or not to do stenting and endovascular procedures to try to restore blood flow to that kidney. Again, this is pretty subspecialized and it really depends on how long that kidney um, has been devascularized for and whether the other kidney is functioning on whether they might attempt that. So we're moving on to pancreas and we'll start again by talking through the grading system for pancreatic trauma injuries. And again, there's five grades. So the first grade, grade one, is a minor contusion or superficial laceration of the pancreas without any pancreatic duct injury. A grade two injury is a major contusion or laceration without any tissue loss or duct injury. A grade three is a distal transection or parenchymal injury with duct disruption. A grade four injury is a proximal transection or parenchymal injury involving the ampulla. And a grade five is a massive disruption of the pancreatic head. I think it's worth mentioning that the proximal and distal cutoff for the pancreas is based on the superior mesenteric vessels. So whether it's to the left or the right of those. Exactly. So in reality, any significant injury to the right of the superior mesenteric vessels is going to be a grade four or grade five injury. In terms of approach of pancreatic injuries, you just mentioned off air a nice memory aid. So suck the head and bite the tail, likening the pancreas to a prawn. (laughs) So diagnosis of pancreatic injuries is really difficult. And the one that I've seen we miss the diagnosis for. So I guess that just shows that, you know, it's it's a relatively rare traumatic injury because the pancreas is located in the retroperitoneum. And that means that the signs and symptoms are going to be less obvious. And also it's often associated with other injuries that you may think are the cause of the symptoms. In terms of diagnosis, you need to have a high index of suspicion based on the mechanism of injury. And they often talk about handlebar injuries or if the steering wheel is broken. You can do a serum lipase, which if it's elevated can be a good indication that there is a pancreatic injury, but can also be completely normal in pancreatic trauma. CT scan can be a helpful adjunct. Its sensitivity is around 80%, so it's high but not 100%, and it doesn't always give you a good idea about the extent of the injury, and it can obviously miss the diagnosis or underestimate the severity of the injury at times. MRI is a very good imaging modality for the pancreas, but obviously you need a hemodynamically stable, well patient to go and lie in an MRI for an hour. But that can be something, especially down the tract, if the patient develops a pseudocyst or a pancreatic fistula to have a look at what the injury is. Going back to our trauma laparotomy, where you have entered the abdomen and you're investigating the pancreas, in general, um, as Ben has mentioned, the 
decision-making aid that I like to think about because I think pancreatic trauma is very complicated, but to distill it right down is to suck the head and bite the tail. We're not hepatobiliary surgeons and we don't want to be doing an acute traumatic Whipple's procedure in somebody. So if you have a seriously disrupted head injury or a complex pancreatic duodenal injury, you really just need to get yourself out of trouble, put drains in. If you've got big holes in the duodenum, do what you might do in a difficult duodenal ulcer. Put drains in and cobble it around, leave big drains on the outside. And then you're turning a situation where you have uncontrolled pancreatic leak into a controlled situation. They also mentioned doing a pyloric exclusion in these situations if you have these complex injuries. That's going to take time and then you need to do a gastrodigenostomy. But in the you know acute situation, I think putting big drains in is what I'm going to say. And then in terms of biting the tail... A distal pancreatectomy is not a particularly difficult operation. We've already talked a little bit about splenectomy and mobilizing the spleen up to the midline. And basically, a distal pancreatectomy is a continuation of that. So you continue your mobilization along the splenic vessels posteriorly to mobilize the tail of the pancreas up into the wound. And then you can just use a um, TA stapler across the pancreas as long as you're to the left of the superior mesenteric vessels to divide the pancreas, remove the pancreas and the spleen, oversew the duct if you can see it, and leave big drains. The other thing to talk about, I guess, is identifying that you actually have a pancreatic injury. The pancreas is a retroperitoneal organ and it sits right in the surgical sole. There's a lot of structures around it. And actually exposing all of the aspects of the pancreas to really have a good look at it is um, quite an involved process. In order to have a look at the pancreas, you need to look at the head, neck, body and tail, both anteriorly and posteriorly. So to look at the head uncinate process um, and the anterior and posterior aspects of the head, you need to do an extended cocker's maneuver and take the paddock flexion down as well in order to be able to see all the way down to the uncinate process. And this could even involve a complete right medial visceral rotation as well. To look at the inferior aspect of the pancreas, you can take a retrocolic approach and um, divide the ligament of treats and mobilize the fourth part of the duodenum and the DJ flexure to get along the inferior aspect. To have a look at the front of the pancreas, it's obviously in the lesser sac, so you can go straight through the lesser omentum if you don't have a lot of time, or you can go through the gastrocolic ligament and divide that off the transverse colon to enter the lesser sac and have a look at the anterior surface. And for the tail, as we've just talked about, you have to mobilize the spleen, paddock flexure, and mobilize the pancreas medially to explore the entire tail and body of the pancreas. The other thing to think about with pancreatic trauma is nutritional support. So considering putting in a nasogeginal feeding tube and a nasogastric tube, um, and you can also use some metastatin analogs if you have a pancreatic fistula, although there's not amazing evidence for that. Another adjunct to a pancreatic injury in specialist centres may be ERCP and stenting of the pancreatic duct in order to try and reduce that pancreatic fistula as well or all of the things that we use for pancreatitis so endoscopic drainage of pseudocysts if they develop and um, collections and obviously even if you're doing a distal pancreatectomy or whatever you do leave lots of drains lots of big drains that's right that's it so let's finish off by talking about retroperitoneal hematomas Depending on the mechanism, whether it's blunt or penetrating trauma, will determine the management. There's a description of the retroperitoneum which divides it into three different zones, uh, which helps us think about what might be injured and what might be causing the retroperitoneal hematoma. So zone one is a central retroperitoneal hematoma, and these are related to injuries to the aorta and the inferior vena cava. Zone 2 are lateral hematomas related to usually the renal veins, renal artery and kidney injuries. And a zone 3 injury is a retroperitoneal pelvic hematoma related to a pelvic injury. The principles of management are that in penetrating trauma, the retroperitoneal hematomas should be explored because it's likely a true vascular injury. And that vascular injury needs to be repaired. In blunt trauma, however, 
we should only be exploring zone 1 or central retroperitoneal hematomas because these are aortic and IVC injuries which are still going to need repair. Zone 2 hematomas are usually due to renal lacerations and don't necessarily need exploring. And zone 3 injuries due to pelvic fractures don't necessarily need exploring either and should be managed as per the principles of pelvic fractures. So talking first about a zone 1 retroperitoneal hematoma, this you're going to explore in both blunt and penetrating trauma, as Ben has just said. And I've heard it split up into zone 1 supramesocolic and inframesocolic compartments. So a supramesocolic zone 1 retroperitoneal hematoma is most likely going to be a aortic injury up around the renal SMA um, or celiac vessels. And this is quite a challenging area to get to. Before you enter a hematoma, you want to try to get proximal and distal control. So for the supramesocolic zone 1 injuries, the control is either the supraceliac aorta, if you have to and the patient's really unwell, or you can do a left medial visceral rotation um, and mobilize all of the organs into the midline and then over to the right side, which gives you good exposure to the proximal aorta. And if you divide the left crus at the two o'clock position, then you actually get access to the lower thoracic aorta. And this is much easier to clamp across because it doesn't have that big leash work of nerves around it and adventitial tissue. So you can clamp it there if you have a little bit more time, I guess, to do that mobilization. It's probably worth talking a little bit about medial visceral rotation. So in general, there's two different types. The left-sided medial visceral rotation is also called the Maddox maneuver. And for all Top Knife fans, you'll know that he is one of the authors. And so as I've mentioned, this gives you good access to the supramesocolic sector, which contains the suprarenal aorta and all of its branches. And the steps are basically to mobilize the lower descending colon, as you would in a left colectomy along the white line of Tolt. And then as you're pulling the left colon towards you, you continue your division along the white line of Tolt superiorly towards a splenic flexure. And instead of coming around the splenic flexure, you actually continue that around the spleen as you would do a splenic mobilization. And you start rolling the spleen, the pancreas, and the descending colon towards you. And you're basically following that retroperitoneal plane In the case of a retroperitoneal hematoma, often a lot of that dissection is done for you, so it's not as difficult as it is in um, patients who don't have that bleeding there. You can make a decision about whether you want to bring the kidney with you. So if you want to leave the kidney behind, then it does mean that the left renal vein is going to be on top of the aorta, and it does limit your access to the lateral part of the aorta there. But if the hematoma seems to be quite high, then you might leave the kidney behind. Or if you want a really good access to that whole lateral side of the aorta, then you continue dissection behind the kidney and bring that up with you. If you leave the kidney behind, you have to be mindful of the ureter and that you um, need to stay anterior to that because that's at risk of being damaged. And then you basically continue this dissection all the way up to the diaphragmatic hiatus. And as I mentioned, you cut the left crus at the two o'clock position um, and then you can bluntly dissect around the aorta and get your proximal control. So staying with a zone one supramesocolic hematoma, once you've done your left medial visceral rotation, you also, and you've gotten your proximal control, you do need to get distal control, which is easy to get just above the aortic bifurcation. Don't have to do much more mobilization to get there. And then you have full exposure to the aorta and you can assess and fix the injuries that you find. In terms of the inframesocolic zone one hematomas, You want to have a look at the area and make a decision about whether you think the hematoma is going more to the left or more to the right. If it's more to the left, then it's likely a infrarenal aortic injury and you want to approach that either from the front or from the left side with your medial visceral rotation like we just talked about. Or if the hematoma seems to be more to the right side and looks more venous, then you're probably dealing with an IVC injury. And you would approach that differently. So you'd approach that with a right-sided medial visceral rotation. So talking about a right-sided medial visceral rotation, this is also called a cattle brush maneuver. And it's described in three stages, which is essentially just continuing um, from the first to the second and to the third. So I don't know why it's described in three (laughs) stages, but anyway. So stage one is a cocker's maneuver. 
So this is, as we all know, mobilizing the duodenum and the head of the pancreas up. And you want to go um, all the way until you can see the left renal vein and, and you're seeing the aorta, so you can see the whole IVC. And then you extend this coccus maneuver into the posterior peritoneum, going up towards the head and then down the right side of the colon along the white line of tolt. And you mobilize the right colon and completely and reflect it medially. And again, you can decide whether to leave or take the kidney with you. And then the third part is to continue it around below the cecum. And then the base of the small bowel mesentery extends from the base of the cecum in a transverse line up towards the left upper quadrant, towards the DJ flexure. And so you incise that retroperitoneal attachment to mobilize all of the small bowel as well. And then you can actually lift the small bowel and colon up and onto the patient's chest. So it gives you this really great view of pretty much the entire IVC, some of the um, anterior and lateral aspect of the aorta and you know most of the root of the mesentery as well. Um, but you have to be really careful careful because it will just be left on the root of the mesentery that you don't avolve the veins and that you're very careful um, with this maneuver. So going back to a zone one inframesocolic hematoma, as I've said, you would do that right-sided medial visceral rotation if you think that there's an IVC injury and this will expose the infrarenal IVC and you can use swabs on a stick to control this. You don't really need to formally clamp the vein. You can get good control. And they talk about identifying the edges of the injury for the IVC injury. And you can use Babcocks to pull the edges up towards you. And once you've got that all up, place a Satinsky clamp behind it. And then you have control of the bleeding to do your repair. And then for a left-sided hematoma, you can, as I've said, either do a left-sided medial visceral rotation, which will give you good access to the aorta, but not amazing access because the um, sigmoid colon comes down. It can sometimes be difficult to get really good access to the lower part of the aorta. So the other way to approach the infrarenal aorta is like they would for an abdominal aneurysm, where you divide the ligament of trites, and then you reflect the duodenum laterally, and then you sort of come straight down onto the aorta. And you can get access control proximally on the aorta there um, if the hematoma isn't too high um, by dissecting bluntly around the aorta just below the renal vein um, and putting a clamp on it. But if the hematoma is quite high, you may need to do a supraceliac clamp. And then you can just incise down the anterior surface of the aorta um, because the IMA comes off the left lateral aspect usually. So that's quite a safe plan and you can open up all of that anterior aspect of the aorta there. And I guess in terms of options of repair for major vessels if you have a side hole and you can do a lateral repair with a running 5-0 prolane or something like that go for it i'm going to find it really difficult to say that i would be doing an interposition graft in these situations which is what the books say to do next so i think in this situation if i was by myself and there wasn't a vascular surgeon i'd be doing a shunt and getting the patient out of trouble if there was a really you know disrupted injury that i couldn't primarily repair you can ligate the infrarenal IVC, um, but you need to do fasciotomies because the patients uh, may get compartment syndrome in the legs due to venous congestion. Um, but they say definitely try not to ligate the suprarenal IVC. It has a high rate of cardiac arrest. Talking about the kidneys, the left renal vein can be quite an annoyance, can be in the way, especially if you're trying to get to the aorta. And obviously the renal arteries come off behind the left renal vein from the lateral aspects of the aorta. So you can actually divide the left renal vein close to the IVC because it will drain through the lumbar veins and the adrenal and the gonadal veins that will drain into it. But you can't do the same on the right-hand side because there's no other drainage source. And that can be a nice adjunct if you are trying to get access to the renal vessels, which really takes us on to a zone two hematoma. So for a zone two retroperitoneal hematoma, if you have penetrating trauma, you should always explore because there's a risk of renal collecting system or ureteric injury. For blunt trauma, if you don't have a pulsatile or expanding hematoma, then don't open the retroperitoneum because it's probably tamponading itself and you're just going to make it bleed. And most renal injuries can be managed non-operatively and or with embolization if required. 
if you have a pulsatile or expanding hematoma in blunt in trauma, then that would be an indication to explore. So if you have a massively expanding pulsatile hematoma in zone two or a penetrating injury, there's two options. So the first is to try to get proximal control, which is called midline looping. And this takes quite a lot of time. So you want to make sure that the patient is stable enough for you to do this. And this basically involves actually isolating and looping the renal artery and renal vein, which can be difficult. As I've mentioned, the arteries hide behind the left renal vein and the uh, right renal vein is quite short. And so it can be difficult to do this. But in, in general, if you're trying to get to the left vein, it's crossing over the aorta, that's easy to find. And then you basically retract that loop downwards and you carefully dissect above and to the left of that. So to the left of the aorta to find the left artery, which you can loop. And then on the right-hand side, it's a short renal vein, so you can loop that. Um, and then you have to actually dissect between the IVC and the aorta to identify the right renal artery. If you try to go lateral to the IVC to get the artery, then you're more likely just to get segmental branches and not actually get the formal artery. So that's one approach. And then there's the what sounds like much easier approach, which is just to mobilize the kidney into the midline. So in order to get to the kidney and see a retroperitoneal hematoma, you've done a medial visceral rotation on one of the sides. So you basically just go behind the kidney. You can incise toroidus fascia, get your hand in behind the kidney and mobilizing it up to the midline is pretty pretty easy once you've opened the fascia. And then you can just clamp across the vessels and you've controlled the bleeding. You can inspect the renal capsule and see if there's something simple that you can control, like a capsule at tear or laceration, simple measures. You can also do partial resections of kidneys, and that's described. We do that in DSTC. I'd be hoping there was a urologist around to help me with that. But in general, you have to close the renal collecting system with an absorbable suture and then basically placate the parenchyma back over that repair and you can use little buttressing Teflon pledgets if you need to so that the sutures don't pull through and leave a drain. Or if the patient's really sick and the kidney is smashed, you just resect it and you just divide the artery and vein and um, divide the ureter between two arteries and ligate it and remove the kidney. Easy. Easy peasy. <laughs> we actually get to do this in DSTC. If you haven't done the course and you get an opportunity to, you get to do this in a pig model. So it's really good. So that leaves us with zone three, which is a pelvic retroperitoneal hematoma. Often we're not exploring these or finding these at laparotomy. These are identified on your trauma CT scan in association with a pelvic fracture. So a zone three retroperitoneal hematoma is down in the pelvis. And again, we need to think about the mechanism of injury. In blunt trauma, this is most likely due to a pelvic fracture. And we haven't discussed management of pelvic fractures, and I think we'll probably do that at another time. But the principles of pelvic fracture management are really stabilization, preperitoneal packing, or angioembolization. And often, if we're finding this at laparotomy, those are still the principles of management and, and we wouldn't necessarily need to go exploring here. If we're thinking about a penetrating injury though, there are major retroperitoneal vessels in this area such as the uh, iliac arteries and in penetrating trauma this may need to be explored. The usual principles of proximal and distal control and exposure are, apply here as they do anywhere else and uh, we've also got adjuncts of angioembolization and stenting up our sleeve as well. In terms of proximal and distal control of the iliac arteries it's going to be slightly different on the left and the right sides. If we're thinking about exposing the right iliac artery the key steps are to open the peritoneum on the right side of the aortic midline over the common iliac artery and you just use blunt dissection in the periadventitial plane down the vessel, making sure the uh, ureter is seen and protected. We need to be careful also not to do too much blunt dissection uh, over the aortic bifurcation because there are important nerves there. If we're thinking about the left side, the 
sigmoid mesocolon does overlie the left iliac artery and vein, so you may need to mobilise the sigmoid mesocolon off the lateral abdominal wall in order to get access to the vessels here. In terms of proximal and distal control, you can usually get proximal control at the level of the aortic bifurcation by applying a clamp. In terms of obtaining distal control, it can be difficult. You can use a number of things like just compression of the vessel from your assistant or using a swab on a stick or a diva retractor. Amanda and I were just discussing off air about not doing too much dissection around the vein and artery uh, individually because they're often closely adherent and it's uh, usually best to compress both structures together. Another way to obtain distal control is to use a Fogarty balloon catheter as well. And that's it for... Abdominal trauma. I'm exhausted. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ben, for joining me again. It's much less stressful having someone else to check what I'm saying and to help me out. So I really appreciate you coming. Thanks for having me. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying. Happy studying.